You are listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Elder Law Answers is the leading provider of web-based practice development tools for elder law attorneys. We help firms reach clients with tools designed by elder law attorneys for elder law attorneys. I'm Rebecca Hobbs, the National Director of Elder Law Answers and a practicing elder law attorney in the Philadelphia area. In each episode of Elder Law Answers for Attorneys, we will chat with leading experts in the fields of elder law, marketing, and practice development. Welcome. In today's episode, I'm welcoming back Bobby Schindler. In our prior episode, The Story of Terry Scheibo, we heard from Bobby Schindler regarding his sister's story. If you missed that episode, which is episode 117, make sure you go back and listen to it. In this episode, I wanted to focus on the advocacy work of Bobby Schindler. So Bobby Schindler is president of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network, and Bobby really spends his time advocating for the medically vulnerable in honor of his sister, Terry Schiavo. He's a full-time pro-life advocate, and Bobby and his family have been instrumental in providing resources and support to more than 3,000 patients and families. So welcome, Bobby, and thank you for joining us. Sure. Thank you for having me. So, Bobby, give us a little background on your advocacy work and the formation of your nonprofit, the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. Right. So it was it was in response to, to our family's, uh, I guess, our efforts to, to to protect my sister, bring her home, and care for her, that we um, we decided as a family that we wanted to try and continue to advocate, uh, just be patient advocates to help families and patients that are in situations that were similar to what my family had experienced. In, in, in our, you know, trying to in our battle to to help my sister and protect my sister, so uh, we formed the uh, the nonprofit, the Terry Shavo Life and Hope Network. Uh, just a few months after Terry's death, we probably probably should have taken more time to uh, mourn, if, uh, so to speak. But uh, we we jumped, really jumped right right into it. We had a lot of families during Terry's battle that that approached us and and said uh, and asked us to continue, if we could, to continue being a voice for. For families and for patients that, that were that were similar in what our family experienced, and what that what that means, uh, Rebecca, is there there are there are parents out there that were that were caring for for people with brain injuries like Terry uh, that needed twenty four hours, seven days a week care at most 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 times in a home setting, and they were worried if what would happen to their loved one if when they would pass on, uh, would they become wards of the state, and would the state take steps to uh, to end, end their loved one's life, so uh, we, we were getting a lot of lot of uh, a lot of people approached us and would contact us about just that. So we we took that into consideration and some other things, and and decided to uh, to establish this nonprofit as really to work as patient advocates and basically three things: educate the public because there is so much misunderstanding about this issue. Uh, there was in my sister's case, and we saw that with the media reports and. And just in, in our conversations with others, uh, all the misperceptions that, are, that existed. So we want to try and educate the public, uh, raise awareness. So I guess that that kind of goes together with you know, educating the public. But most importantly, use the resources that we had uh, to help families in crisis. So uh, if a family would call us, we would assess the situation, see what they were going through, and uh, and try to help them really provide them with the help they need to uh, whatever it was they were uh, experiencing as far as uh, caring mm-hmm. for their loved ones. Now, 
the the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network, um, your organization advocates that that food and water be classified nationally as basic and ordinary care. Can you explain this and and what that means? Sure. Well, um, the food and water through a feeding tube, and, and again, this go and and, we, and and the work that we do at the nonprofit, we try, we've, we try to focus on helping people in these types of situations. And what that means is we, we try not to to get involved in cases where someone, a person might be in the uh, imminently dying, meaning they might be hours or days away from death. And uh, that ethically, they can be thorny situations. However, situations with like Terry uh, really are, are not very, as far as you know, what, what should we do to, to help these patients? Because uh, they're, they're not dying. They don't have a terminal illness. Uh, the only thing that is sustaining them is food and hydration. For whatever reason, they have difficulties with with eating uh, by regular means with utensils. So they need, you know, because of the brain injury, is most common. So they need a feeding tube. Uh, but otherwise, there there's there's nothing else that that's um, keeping them alive. So. But but these people are really in the crosshairs in, in today's healthcare system, uh, because one reason in particular is because of the reclassification of food and uh, feeding tubes. It used to be basic ordinary care, but today it's classified as medical treatment. And because of this change in the way we define feeding tubes, it is depending what state you live in. It's legal in all fifty states, but there's some nuances in the state laws. So depending what state you live in. It could be rather easy to have it removed or denied from a loved one, and um, for, the, for the purpose of ending their life. So, we try to step in. If a family calls us and say, for example, they call us and, and they tell us my my loved one experienced a a, a brain injury, uh, say for example a car accident, and the hospital is now telling us that uh, we don't we don't think your your loved one is going to have any type of meaningful recovery, and we're going to take steps to uh, withdraw their feeding tube. And the family, say the parents in this case, say, wait a second, We're, we don't want to do that. My loved one is not dying. Uh, the only thing keeping him alive is food and hydration through the feeding tube. We want to provide him therapy, uh, rehabilitation. We want to see if, in fact, uh, he can improve or she can improve. Uh, and the hospital, for whatever reason, I can give you some of the scenarios why the hospitals are doing these types of things now. Say, well, I'm sorry, we disagree. Uh, we're going to we're going to remove unless you can find another place that will treat him. Uh, we're going to take away his food and hydration, and your loved one will die. So, they're the types of situations that, if a family knows that we exist, will call us, and then we'll do what we can to try to help the family. Um, stop the threat, stop this from happening. And, and most times it's providing them with an attorney that can intervene and, and work with the hospital, negotiate with the hospital to try and uh, listen to the parents right. and you know, provide, provide the loved one the care that they're seeking. Now let's talk a little bit. So, you know, we as elder law attorneys, um, we encourage people to prepare advanced directives and to prepare healthcare power of attorneys that kind of express what their wishes are regarding end of life care. Um, but sometimes some of these situations kind of fall outside of the scope of that document as well. Um, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. Have you found in your advocacy work 
that where somebody has an advanced directive, that can eliminate a lot of these thorny issues? Well, yeah, I guess so. Uh, and, and remember, I think, it, again, um, if I'm repeating myself, my apologies, but the, these really, the cases, most of the cases that we're, we work on are not what we would refer to as end of life because uh, when I think of end of life, and I think when most people might think of end of life, it, it's when someone is actually dying. They're in a dying process. And whether it's from a, a terminal illness, as I mentioned earlier, maybe they're, they're just days away from death. Uh, th- these are cases where uh, someone is not dying and, and the only thing keeping them alive um, is food and hydration because they're having difficulty swallowing. And, and, and just just to, to mention real quick, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'll get to your question, but now, feeding tubes are common today. Um, I had read a report not that long ago where there's upwards of a million people that are either receiving Feed, have a feeding tube either for a short period of time or, or something of longer duration. Uh, some people need it as a bridge. They might have a stroke and need a feeding tube until they learn they learn how to, to, to use you know to eat again. Um, some need, need them longer. Uh, they're more permanent, like in the case of my sister who's having ongoing difficulty swallowing and, and needs a, a more permanent type of feeding tube. But nevertheless, um, th- these are the cases uh, that, that we work on um, and we try to stay away from those those types of situations where uh, mm. it, it is an end of life because they, they really are uh, you got to handle them on an individual basis depending on what, what's going on with that patient because there could be all kind of medical issues happening um, with a particular case or particular situation but so so can so your question can an advanced directive like, say in my sister's case, could have advanced directive um, maybe prevented a lot of the, 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 the legal battle or, or some, some of the, um, the things that, that might lead to, to family dispute. And I guess they, they can, of course, if, if there's clarity on uh, and as far as w- what the advanced directive might or the medical document might say. Uh, but I, I, in our experience, the last almost 15 years now, um, we, we my, and again, I'm not an attorney, uh, but just seen a lot, of, a lot of scenarios with families and, and dealing with documents. Um, seems to me it's, it's, it's almost better just to appoint someone as a healthcare proxy, a healthcare surrogate that's going to speak for you uh, if you're in you know, a situation where you can't speak for yourself. And basically what that means is appointing someone that would step in and, and, mm-hmm. and be your advocate. Um, and, and there's really nothing uh, other than that, that that you provide to, if you say if you get admitted to a hospital, you, you just tell the hospital that you're their um, legal healthcare surrogate and you'll be making all the medical decisions for this, mm-hmm. this person. Uh, I mean, of course, advanced directives, I guess, can, can be helpful, but but there are some problems with healthcare directives, um, and that's why, for me personally, I always try to advise people that it's. I think you're much better served to have a healthcare proxy that's going to uh, you know, advocate for you if you're in a situation where you can't. In your advocacy work, you know, I'm sure you hear and you see a lot of different cases and situations that come up. 
have have you noticed or do you think that from the time you know, when you went through all of this with your sister until now we're in 2019 the end of 2019 have there been advances or changes that the climate is getting better um, or do you think that there have been you know changes that are making it um, more difficult for families to advocate for their loved ones yeah I, I think there's it, it's, it's moving in a direction where I think it is becoming more difficult uh, I, I, it, it seems to me and this is just personal opinion and observations over the years and, and I and I think some of it, it probably can be validated but because of the the, the, the huge financial um, problems that we're having the cost of healthcare today uh, that and, and also it seems to me that um, it's there's, there's not that patient uh, physician relationship I think today that that perhaps existed um, not that long ago, and um, and and I think we see that where, say for example, someone gets admitted to a hospital, they're going to have several doctors that specialize in, I guess, different different fields or different disciplines that are that are treating a patient, rather than perhaps one uh, physician that that really can have a relationship with the patient and, and knows uh, perhaps what, what is, what best serves the patient. So, so, but, but to get back to your, your, your question, it, it seems to me that what's happening today um, is be, because of this financial strain that the hospitals oftentimes are making decisions that work in their best interest rather than the patients. And, and I can give a lot of examples of what I, what, what I mean by this, but, uh, what we're definitely seeing is the, the rights of, of healthcare surrogates, whoever they might be, if their parents are, are really being stripped away, and, and many of the decision-making powers now are in the hands of ethics committees, um, hospital administrators, and, and I, you know I don't I don't know so much if it's you know, clinicians would you would include clinicians in that, but I don't know if it's so much that the, the doctors are, are making decisions themselves or if they're being pressured by the administrators, they're being pressured by insurance companies uh, to, to make these decisions on treatment, to make the treatment decisions for patients uh, based on cost. Uh, so, and, and so the cases we're seeing when, when this happens, um, what that translates into is that they're going to end treatment. They're going to stop treatment. They're not going to give a, a patient the time they might need and the care they might need to recover, uh, particularly brain injuries. And we're also seeing this with the elderly. We're seeing a real push to, to, to make it easier to, um, to end the lives of the elderly rather than to, to continue care. Uh, but particularly with people with brain injuries, if, if someone comes in with a catastrophic brain injury and uh, the doctor feels that they're not going to make any type of um, meaningful recovery in, in, the, short, in the short term, uh, that it seems to me oftentimes they're advising families to stop care, stop treatment uh, uh, based on it, it's going to be too costly. Even if this person does recover, they're going to, they're, they're not going to cover to the point where they're going to be able to take care of themselves. You're going to be, you're going to be in a situation where you have to take care of this loved one for, for the rest of their life. Uh, it'd be a lot easier just to, to, to uh, stop treatment now and um, you know, pressuring families to make these decisions without really affording the patient the time and the cost to, to, the, the time, the cost to see if, in fact, 
uh, they, they can improve with aggressive treatment and therapy. So mm. uh, that's kind of a long answer, but but I think there are, uh, so you asked, are things getting better or worse? It just seems that uh, cost containment that, that are, are really the driving force behind a lot of these treatments today, particularly when it comes to people with brain injuries, rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt to see if in fact they can recover from, look, if you look at it this way, if, if a doctor comes in and sees someone with a catastrophic brain injury and, and they know it, um, it's this 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 is going to be this person even if they do recover they're going to they're going to need treatment for a very long time uh so the cost involved with, with that decision compared to uh the cost of ending that person's life in, in you know, within a very very short time meaning days so when when that's driving decisions by the hospitals or, or when it comes to patient care you can see that it, it can become very dangerous and and that's exactly what we're seeing because we're getting more and more calls from families that are telling us that decisions are being made awfully quick to stop treatment before families are prepared to make a decision that they can never change. Because once they make the decision to stop treatment and that person dies, uh, they'll never have the opportunity to see if, in fact, if they mm-hmm. could have provided them uh, treatment to see if, in fact, they could have uh, you know, at least had a chance at getting better and recovering. And, and, with, and I, I, I can kind of talk about brain some of those things that are happening in, 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 in neuroscience and, and what we're finding out about the brain that, that, can, that can really um, validate you know, that, that time is needed for patients to recover with brain injuries before, in fact, mm-hmm. they decide in their lives. Now, tell me, so, you know, having gone through the, the case with your sister um, and, you know, with the experience of your advocacy work, if you could go back um, and you could give your family and give yourself advice when you were going through the situation with Terry, what would you tell yourself? What would you do differently um, now that you have all of this experience and you know of resources that are out there? Well, that's a good question. What would I have done differently? Um, well, I probably would have not anticipating what Michael would, would eventually was going to uh, try and do as far as removing the food and hydration, I, we probably would have probably would have done something to to um, mm-hmm. to prevent that from happening. Um, and and also, uh, I mean, well, well, naturally, I think I think that's the first thing that comes to mind because you know our family had to experience my sister mm-hmm. dying by dehydration and starvation, and anything I could have done differently to prevent that from happening, I, I would have because. Uh, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough. There, there's there's this narrative out there, or there's these there's this notion that dying by dehydration, starvation is a peaceful and painless way to die. You can go online and and you can read articles about doctors and how they 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 will um, talk about the the peaceful and painless way it is to die by you know with someone with a brain injury, someone like Terry couldn't feel pain, which I don't which. Mm. Is, is not true, um, but but regardless, uh, for what we saw my my sister go through, she she what it was a very painful process for her, extremely painful. So so um so uh, yeah so you, you know to to, um, mm-hmm. to do anything we could have to prevent this from happening, right. I think is is now for a family yeah for a family that's going through this now what what resources does your organization organization have or or what should they they do if they need help advocating for their family member right well we 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 work closely with an attorney network 
uh, and oftentimes, we, as I said earlier, that we if if an attorney can intervene, they they can really negotiate with the hospital to try and get the care and treatment that they're if it's the parents or whoever the healthcare surrogate is seeking for the loved one. And you know, unfortunately, it has to, you hate for it to come where you have to get an attorneys involved, but oftentimes that's the only way to to get the care that the, the family is seeking for their loved one. We also can help with doctors, with doctor referrals. And, and depending on the case, if, uh, if, if, if need to, we, we have connections in the media. If, if we want to try to expose the hospital uh, with, with what they're doing to their loved one, um, you know, we use social media in a way to try and help families, uh, um, whatever it might be. But uh, and we also work with uh, ethics organizations that can provide ethical advice to families if they're dealing with a you know, perhaps an end of life situation. Um, so, so there is, you know, over the years, just, just because of what my sister went through and relationships that we have created, established with other organizations and, and people, we, we're, we're well, well equipped today to help families. And when we do this all, we, we don't, we don't call, we don't charge families for our help. Uh, we, we're not counselors. Um, we're just, um, an organization that tries to use our experience to help other families, um, you know, help protect their, their loved one. But we've been doing it for 15 years now. We've been pretty successful at helping families over the years. We can't always help families, uh, but we do have a crisis lifeline number that people can call us. We're very small. We 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 do we were survived by the by the support and the and the uh, the um, the uh, from other people, what's the word I'm looking for? Just by the generosity of others, because we are a nonprofit, uh, but we're a small organization, and we we've just dedicated our life, our lives to trying to help others avoid what our family had mm-hmm. to uh, experience. And, uh, and we're working on some projects now, I think, for the future. And, and we're always trying mm-hmm. just to honor my sister and her legacy, and just to keep her name out there, so uh, people will never forget what what she went through, and, and really the, the blessings that have. Uh, resulted in, in my my sister's you know, life and her terrible death that she had to had to go through, and so we're doing our best to kind of yeah. Honor her memory now and, you know, in in the last few minutes we have, what what do you want people to remember most about your sister and her story? Well, I, I think just a lot of what I just what I just said. Um, you know, Terry, Terry was a, a brain. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, misinformation that's floating. Or, floating out there about my sister that still exists. The media is still, I don't think they're not always fair uh, with my sister's case. They, they kind of, even to this day, they kind of regurgitate a lot of the things, inaccuracies that are written about my sister. There, there's a lot of people that are very, there just seems to be a deep-rooted bias, uh, deep-rooted um, prejudices against people with brain injuries, people with, with physical disabilities. And, you know, I see this a lot. I saw a lot with my sister's cases, a lot of emails that receive. Uh, the Family Guy, the, the the program Family Guy, South Park. I mean, uh, there's been so many shows and people that have just been very cruel and 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 attacking my sister. And you know, I just try to. You know, we we all any any moment we, anybody can experience a brain injury, and you know, we, these these people just because they they experience some type of physical disability that doesn't they don't become less dignified. They don't lose their dignity. They don't lose their value. Their worth. In fact, we should do more. It seems to me, once a person becomes disabled, we're doing more to make it easier to end these people's lives and not care for them. Where, we're in fact, we should be doing more to protect these people in our society, 
provide them more um, security so we don't just make it easier to end their lives because we want to. Um, it's, it's hard caring for these people. You know, sometimes they're, they're in situations where they, they, need, they need a lot of care and treatment. But, but I feel like we're, we're called to do that. We're, we're not, it's, it's an easy decision to, to, to just decide to end someone's life, but it's, it's difficult to, to decide to care for someone. Uh, you know, I see the parents and out there that are caring for people with disabilities like my sister, and I saw my parents and their willingness to, to want to unconditionally love their daughter. And it's a beautiful thing. These people feel blessed that they have these, these people in their lives where they can show them the love and compassion they deserve. And it, and it really... Um, to, to manifest their, their love and, and caring manifest through these people with disabilities and it's, to think that they have no value and it's and, and they should be decided to end their life based on this disability to me it just doesn't it's terrible it doesn't make sense and, and we're doing what we best to kind of change people's the way, the way we look at those with disabilities and, right. and the care and treatment. Well, Bobby, thank you so need. much for, for being here and for sharing your sister's story and telling us a little bit about your advocacy work um, and your nonprofit, the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. If people want to reach you or they want to learn more about your organization, what is the best way for them to find out more information? Sure. It's really easy. It's lifeandhope.com, all one word, lifeandhope.com. They can go there. There's a, there's a, as I mentioned earlier, we have a crisis lifeline. If you are in a situation where you might need help or some guidance, uh, uh, you can contact us for any reason. Or you can even email us. Uh, but if you go to that website, you can get a lot of information about the work we do. And if you do need help, you there's ways that you can contact us. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for sharing your sister's story with us. Um, and thank you all for listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague. Please subscribe on iTunes and find all the past episodes at podcast.elderlawanswers.com. Thank you.